It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. The remnants of Typhoon Bolivin will reach the Gulf of Alaska this week, bringing moderate to heavy rain and strong winds to southeast Alaska. According to meteorologist Kimberly Vaughn with the National Weather Service in Juneau, rain is expected to pick up Tuesday morning. We're looking for rain to continue through the week, and it'll somewhat taper off on uh, Friday. A high wind watch is in effect for communities in the southern panhandle early this week, including Prince of Wales Island, Ketchikan, and Metlakatla. Strong winds with gusts up to 60 miles per hour are possible as the ex-typhoon makes landfall on Tuesday morning. Winds at that speed could blow down trees or power lines, which could cause blackouts in those communities. Though the rain will be persistent this week, Vaughn says the expected rainfall amounts are pretty typical for a fall storm. It's still going to be heavy rain. We're going to continue to monitor river levels, but it's not anything that's likely to be record-breaking. But there is still the potential for minor flooding across the entire panhandle. At its peak this past weekend, Typhoon Bolivan reached wind speeds of 180 miles per hour, making it the second strongest storm of 2023 worldwide. Ocean temperatures in the western Pacific Ocean are currently warmer than normal due to a combination of a natural warming phenomenon known as El Nino and hotter temperatures linked to human-caused climate change. Warmer waters can fuel intense storms like Typhoon Bolivan. But with the typhoon lost much of its power as it moved across the open ocean over the weekend. Ketchikan's tribe wants to change the community's designation under federal subsistence rules to give residents more access to subsistence resources. The tribe is asking to change from urban to rural status, which would apply to all 14,000 residents in the Ketchikan Gateway Borough. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the tribe hopes that recent changes to the designation process will help it win approval. Most communities in Alaska are designated by the federal government as rural, recognizing a lifestyle that is inextricably tied to the land. But there are urban exceptions, like Anchorage, Juneau, and Ketchikan. It's a status that's overseen by the Federal Subsistence Board. The urban communities don't have a subsistence priority like the rest of the state. That means they have limited access to subsistence resources on federal lands. Tony Gallegos is with the Ketchikan Indian community. It's an unfairness to the system because we're urban. We're not considered to have access to those resources. For example, Ketchikan residents, including tribal members, can't fish for Uligan in the Eunuch River, while residents from smaller nearby communities can, even though their ancestors have been harvesting the little smelt species for thousands of years. Gallegos has been working on a proposal to change the community's status from urban to rural through the Federal Subsistence Board. The tribe wants to remove impediments from their access to traditional foods that they depend upon, and by being a uh, In a community that's considered urban, nobody in the community uh, has the designation of federally recognized subsistence user. The rural-non-rural status goes back to 1980, when the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, was put into law. It designated more than 100 million acres of federal land in Alaska into parks, recreation areas, and refuges. And it was then that communities were labeled rural or urban. It's a big deal to rescind these things. Brent Vickers is an anthropologist with the Federal Office of Subsistence Management. His office will make a recommendation on the proposal next fall. He says the process to change a community's status now takes at least four years, 
much longer than it used to. That's because public input is a major part of the process. Until 2015, it was decided mostly by numbers, things like the average household income and the number of hotels and grocery stores in a community. It really didn't have opportunities for much input and was really just based on these kind of quantitative metrics. The process changed in 2015 after complaints and a review to a more comprehensive approach. Now, Vickers says the board considers more factors and relies heavily on the recommendations of the subsistence regional advisory councils. Now, the analysis will look at all sorts of things, basically painting a picture of what what these communities are like, um, what it's like to live in these communities. In Ketchikan's case, there are about 14,000 people in the borough, but it's also isolated on an island off the road system. The community has a large indigenous population. But the rural status wouldn't just affect tribal members. It would qualify all Ketchikan borough residents as subsistence users, no matter their background. Wildlife officials also would be required to prioritize their needs over commercial and sport users. Gallegos says it's the third time the Ketchikan tribe has sought a change, but he hopes for a different result this time. He says both Ketchikan city and borough have passed resolutions in support of a rural status. Right now, the tribe is trying to work within the system as it's structured with the rules and regulations that are in place, trying to see if we can go ahead and break down this barrier. Since the designation process changed in 2015, the Federal Subsistence Board has only considered one proposal in Alaska. That was for the community of Moose Pass near Seward on the Kenai Peninsula. It had been considered part of the urban Seward area, but gained rural status in 2021. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Designers unveiled four possible development options for Juno's Telephone Hill neighborhood last week. About 50 people attended a community meeting to review the potential plans. As KTOO's Katie Anastas reports, many of them called for the city to consider a no-build option instead of adding new housing. Telephone Hill has seven houses and one five-unit apartment building. Tenants paid rent to the state until March when the city and borough of Juneau became the owner of the downtown property. City leaders say they want to put more housing there, but tenants have opposed any plan that would force them to leave their homes. The city contracted with First 40 Feet, an Oregon-based company, to come up with a design and development plan. On Wednesday, they presented four possible designs at a community meeting. Just one involves keeping the existing homes. Jason Graff is a designer with First 40 Feet. Everything is possible. The four concepts we're showing you today is, is, are not concepts that say no change. So there is some anticipated change on the hill. All four designs add more housing to Telephone Hill, but in different ways. Option A would replace the existing houses with 30 single-family townhomes. Option B has about 60 units, with a mix of townhomes and three-story apartments. Option C features mid-rise apartment buildings, which could add up to 200 units to the hill. Finally, option D would put apartment buildings among the existing houses. First 40 feet architect James Brackenhoff said that could add 40 new units to Telephone Hill. We wanted to make sure we provided an option that um, took on board what we've been hearing from some of the folks in the community about preserving some of the homes. Brackenhoff said they still need to determine whether or not it's feasible to preserve the homes. 
Downtown resident Joshua Adams said he was skeptical the city would consider keeping the homes, even if the community favored that option. We all know that the city is going to look at this with the survey and say, no, none of these buildings can, can be feasibly restored. Anybody who knows anything about historic restorations knows that it's at least three times as expensive to restore something properly than it is to tear it down and build it new. Does that mean that we shouldn't preserve our history? Many attendees said they didn't think the city should add any new housing at all. Skip Gray, a former Telephone Hill resident, said he's frustrated that the questionnaires don't have a no-build option. There just aren't any answers on those surveys that I want to push the button on. And that kind of tends to lead people to saying things I think that they don't really want. It's just like the only answer there. But Betsy Brenneman, another former Telephone Hill resident, told attendees that the Planning Commission and Assembly were the right people to contact about a no-build option. You're shooting the messenger a lot tonight, which is not necessary, but because the city asked for this plan. Brenneman said she favors keeping the existing homes, but she's open to adding more units around them. If we don't get more people living downtown, you are going to have more closed storefronts in the winter. You are not going to have any businesses downtown. We have to get more people downtown. Some attendees worried the new houses or apartments wouldn't be affordable. Chris Sahas, a consultant tasked with identifying developers for the project, said the city can require a certain amount of affordable housing in its contracts with developers. If the city offered subsidies to developers, those could come with conditions that reflect the community's values. Whether that's housing or historic preservation or um, open space, things like that. Things that the market wouldn't necessarily do on its own, but the city's in a position to kind of put strings attached to it to get what um, the community wants out of it. Anyone interested in providing input about the project can email telephone.hill at juno.gov. In Juno, I'm Katie Anastas. Taking a look at the community calendar. The Sitka Food Security Survey is now open and accessible via a link on the community calendar posting now through Saturday, October 21st. The community-wide food assessment seeks to better understand the economic challenges facing Sitkins and the role wild local foods play in the health and well-being of Sitkins. Hard copies are also available at Sitka Public Library. For more information, email sitkafoodassessment at gmail.com. Registration for parent-taught, pre-K, and be Baranoff beginner fall tumbling is now open at the recreation page at cityofsitka.com. Classes are held Wednesdays and Fridays, October 25th through December 15th at Keat Gushaheen Elementary School. For more information, visit the Parks and Recreation page at cityofsitka.com, call 747-4031, or email recreation at cityofsitka.com. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.